I want to invite you to take your Bible this morning and turn to the letter of 1 Peter. 1 Peter will be in chapter 2. While you're turning there, I'll make one final plea. Next Sunday is our baptism celebration. If you're at a place in your walk with the Lord where you're ready to take that next step to follow him through the waters of believers' baptism, I want to invite you to come up and find me after the service. Let us help you just get you basic details so you'll know what you can do to participate in that celebration. As well, we have um, some construction updates. I'm pointing back here because by next week, there's going to be a second hole in that wall. There's going to be some changes to that wall made. So I just want to make you aware of these things so that you can be prepared and not shocked when you come in. So just be careful over on that side. And then the big holes are going to get dug this week out front. So don't fall in one because we don't want to have to dig you out, right? We will. It would just be best if you didn't fall in. So we're excited about these, but uh, as it encroaches upon our current space to connect to it, we need to be mindful of what's taking place. All right? Well, we're in a series, a series entitled Build. And we're talking about how God builds his church. And Jesus gave us the promise in Matthew 16 that I will build my church. We're looking at what this means. And the last several weeks we've talked about who is this God that builds his church. He is triune in nature. So we talked about what that meant for us. Well, I want to talk about that next step of how then. Not only who, but how does God build his church. And I want us to look at the book of 1 Peter. And I want us to talk about... About today a doctrine called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. When I talk about a doctrine in the church, I'm just simply talking about a teaching of the church, that which we believe the scriptures teach. And because the scripture teaches it, we build the ministries and the mission of our church upon it. And so I want to establish this because the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about what this practically looks like in the life of our church, in ministry, and in the mission of our church. So today, I want us to look at the priesthood of every believer. And I want to ask you something. I want to ask you how many of you think of yourselves as a priest. This little white collar is the white collar of, of a priest, right? Right? I don't wear one. I'm, I'm not a priest in vocationally in that, in that regard. And if you come from a religious tradition that, that had one of these, I'm not, I'm not doing this to be offensive, but I want you to understand because in our contemporary world today, this white collar represents something. And I'm going to speak to that today pointedly, and I want to draw your attention and your mind to that which this speaks to today. Because none of you, to my knowledge, would dare to put one of these on to come to church. But what I have for you today might seem to say that at the very least you should think of yourself in that way. Let's go to First Peter and let's read this passage together. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 2, the scriptures record, As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. 
Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. That God makes his people a royal priesthood to declare and demonstrate his glory through the gospel in the world. This week, on Wednesday, we'll celebrate a great holiday, Reformation Day. I got you, didn't I? Wow, why would he call that a great holiday? What in the... Yeah, Reformation Day. On this day in 1517, Martin Luther nailed, most historians now believe, nailed to the door at Wittenberg, what is known as his 95 theses of what has become to known as the Reformation of the church. Now, Martin Luther wasn't the only Reformed theologian that uh, uh, was participating in this, but he's kind of become the caricature of the turning event that really catalyzed this. So on a day when the world will celebrate spiritual darkness, so to speak, the church simultaneously celebrates a throwing off of spiritual darkness from a lack of understanding and a wrong understanding of who we are in Christ that we might live in the salvation whereby God has purchased us and made us his own people. That's what this is all about. This event, the Reformation and Martin Luther's actions, was a catalytic event turning history for the church. And what we're talking about today is one of the cardinal doctrines that he set forth in his act that catalyzed the Reformation. The doctrine of the priesthood of all believers simply states this, that every person who has been saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ has access to God through Jesus, who is our great high priest, and we do not need another human priest or mediator in order to relate to God. Now, that's just a simple statement of it, but I'm hoping and aiming to unpack that today. Luther said this in his writings, that all baptized believers are called to be priests. This coming from a man who did wear that collar. John Calvin, another famous reformer of that day, said that the priesthood of all believers was not only a spiritual privilege, but a moral obligation and a personal vocation. 
You see, friends, this doctrine teaches us that every Christian has immediate access to God, that we serve God personally as we minister to others, and that each one of us has something to give. Now, I'm laying this doctrine down as our teaching because the next three weeks, I'm going to talk about how explicitly it carries out in the church. But I want you to understand the foundation of what I'm teaching and what the scriptures are saying to us. Because what the doctrine of the priesthood of every believer is capturing is what Peter is saying to us in this passage. That Christians are made into living stones like the living stone Jesus Christ. And we are being continual ongoing action. We are being built into a spiritual ha- uh, a house for the habitation of God. In other words, where God now lives. And I want us to see this in our time today and how important it is for us. Now let me take just a couple of minutes here and let me talk a little bit about a biblical history of the priesthood. What does it mean to be a priest and why should it why should I matter or why should I care and why should it matter? That order was a little more correct, was it not? The first time that we see an encounter with a priest in the scriptures is with a man by the name of Abraham who encounters another man by the name of Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 18. We know in chapter 12 of Genesis that the story of God is that he calls out Abram to come and follow me and to go to a place that I will show you. And the Bible tells us in Hebrews that Abraham had faith in God and he followed God. And God gave him a promise that was stupid crazy. It's not stupid in the sense of shouldn't have happened, but stupid in the sense of magnifying the craziness of it. He was 90, his wife was 80, and he said, you're going to have a baby. Not the typical news you get at that age, right? But not for 10 more years, in case you thought it was possible now. And he said, and I'm going to give you a family that numbers more than the stars you can see. And every time Abraham looked up, he remembered the promise that God had given him, that his lineage would be greater than the stars. And so over the next six chapters, Abraham began to follow the Lord, and he began to pursue the things of God in his life. And right before he met Melchizedek, he had taken his band of soldiers... And he had conquered some of the kings of that region. And he had gained great wealth from that. And on his return home, the Bible tells us he encountered this man. We don't know where he came from. We don't know anything about him at this point in the, in the Bible. But we know this, that Abraham recognized who he was as a representative of God, the one who had called him out and was leading him. And so the Bible says that Abraham recognized him as God's representative and gave him a tenth of all that he had. This was an act of worship for Abraham. The Bible tells us in Hebrews chapter 7, 3, a little more about Melchizedek. Listen to this. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither days of life nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. You see, Melchizedek was a man divinely appointed and placed at a divine point in time 
in order not only to teach us today, but to remind Abraham of the promises and of the faithfulness of God if he would continue to follow him. And that's exactly what Abraham did. And that's the first time we're introduced to this idea of being a priest in the scriptures. Well, we know the story that the Israelites continued. They grew in number. And and then uh, when the famine came, they moved down into the land of Egypt because of God's divine hand leading them there. And ultimately, they rebelled against God. They became Egyptian slaves and captives and lived there for 400 years. But God continued to multiply their number in that captivity. And so God calls to a man by the name of Moses, and he says to Moses, you're going to lead my people out of Egypt. Moses had maybe an excuse or two that he offered, but finally, you know, he said, uncle, and okay, I'll go, you know. And so he went, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he leads God's people out of Egypt after great trials and, and, and tests that, that are put before him. And he comes to a place called Mount Sinai in the wilderness. This is the place that God had brought uh, Moses to tell him that he would lead his people. And he brought the people back because God said, I have something to tell the people. You see, the Bible tells us in Genesis 19 that it was God's intent to make all of the people of Israel his priests. And so he called Moses up on the mountain to give him what we understand today as the Ten Commandments. Those guiding rules of God's holiness and righteousness that are set forth to guide the people. Forty days, it tells us, that Moses was on the mountain. And if you're looking and you know what takes place in the New Testament, there's just signs all along the way that tell us the Savior, that is the true Savior who is coming. Moses was on the mountain for 40 days. And he came down, God said, you need to go down and check on what's going. Because as Moses was up on the mountain, the people of Israel grew impatient. They knew that God was speaking to him, that God was bringing something to them. But, you know, sometimes with all the knowledge of God, we still defer to what we want more than what God has said, don't we? And they went to Aaron, Moses' assistant, and they said, you know, we're tired of waiting on whatever it is that God and Moses are doing. Make us an image that we can worship now. And Aaron said, well, I don't think that's a good idea. And they said, I don't think we asked you. We told you. And so that's what Aaron did. Knowing what Moses wanted him to do, instead he did what the people demanded he do. He collected the gold, he melted it down, and he formed a golden calf idol for the people to bow down. And when Moses came down off the mountain, he found the people in the midst of their idolatry, living their life in such a way to try and bring glory to a man-created image instead of the man-creating God in whose image they were created. And God told Moses at that time, my people will not be a nation of priests because they have worshipped me falsely. They have broken faith with me. And so from this time, God chose Aaron And he called Aaron out and the tribe of Levi, one of the 12 tribes of Israel, and he appointed that tribe to become priests among the people. And the purpose of the priests were to take the law of God and to teach it 
and to make it known among the people and to help the people understand the holiness and the righteousness of God by helping them know how to relate to God and even in the very practices of relating to God. Now fast forward all the way to the New Testament until we get to the time of Jesus. This is the religious system in which God's people were embroiled. And one of the reasons that Jesus does and teaches so much of what he teaches is because many of those who were quote-unquote priests had been perverted and had misled and wrongly made something out of their relationship with God called religion that was misleading the people and not correctly leading the people. But you see, my point is this, that God chose from the 12 tribes of Israel one tribe whose explicit purpose would be to teach the people how they were relate to him. And everything about their life resembled this, even the tabernacle and its form and its function. For the Bible tells us that there was a holy place where God's people could come into from the outer court, but then there was a holy of holies that only the high priest, one person, could go into and only once a year. I don't know what these are doing. And only once a year. It was so regarded. There was a curtain and it has been purported that the curtain was somewhere between 16 and 18 inches thick. The Ark of the Covenant resided within the Holy of Holies. And when the, great, or when the high priest went in once a year, they'd tie a rope around his waist. So if he died going in, they could pull him out and not have to go in and get him. And he would have to make a sacrifice for his sins so he could be atoned before he went in and made sacrifice for the sins of the people. This was the, the ritual, if you will, that they went through to understand. And the reason God did this was the reason that, that God uh, established his priest. Because he said this, there is a right way to know me and there is a wrong way to worship me. And he was teaching the people about his holiness and about his righteousness so they could understand. And, and just as we later learn about the law of the Old Testament, the law explicitly teaches us this, that we're not God. Even the Ten Commandments in their essence, which kind of stand as a representative of the whole law. How many of us can read the whole of the Ten Commandments and go, I hadn't broken any of those. Really? Really? We absolutely have. As a matter of fact, every one of us have broken at least one. And we'll stop there. We don't need to go any further. Because the scriptures tell us if we're guilty of breaking one, we're guilty of them all. You See, that's what the law does. It reminds us of our sin, does it not? As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us that the law imprisons us in our sin because of what it tells us about ourselves. Now, we don't like this. But this is God's purpose for us. So listen carefully. And the priests, we could say, are the wardens of our prison. Who, though we are enslaved, help us understand what it means to be able to relate to God in this prison of sin. And bring to us that which we need and are necessary to know him in our teaching. Okay? So that is the role of priest until the time of Jesus. But you see, God's original will was what? That all of his people would be a nation of priests. Did he forsake that at the Mount of Sinai? No. 
What is he doing? He's holding his people in a place until the full and final revelation of his plan comes about. And that's when we see another man come on the site or on the scene who will be in the order of this man Melchizedek that we saw at first. The Bible tells us that Jesus was born of a virgin, that he came down from the Father above. And you see, where the priestly institution was needed because the sin of the people had not yet been fully dealt with, and there was an intermediary that was required between Israel and God, lest God's holiness break out and destroy his people, uh, the book of Exodus says, Jesus then came and in his coming ushered in a new covenant as a new priest. Hebrews 7.12 tells us that anytime there is a change in priesthood, there must be a change in the law as well. And that's what we see in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. Hebrews tells us throughout that Jesus came as a priest, not in the order of the tribe of Levi or of Aaron, but as a priest in the order of Melchizedek. Remember him? We don't know where he came from, but we know that his priesthood was forever. That he walked with God all throughout. You see, God was giving us an image, a representative of what his ultimate Savior would be like to point us to Jesus, even in in Genesis. You see, Jesus is the one who makes all who are in him a priest as God intended. And he did it in this way, not because we've been made okay and we can go into where God is anytime we want. That is a reality of our relationship with God. But the way God did it is that he tore the curtain that separated us. The Bible says that when Jesus hung on the cross for us, that when his body was broken for us and his blood was spilled for us, that his body was the curtain that was torn in two. And it's not because now we can go in whenever we want to, but God has come out to us. And what a beautiful blessing and a glorious hope that is. It's not about what we have done for God, friends. As Christians, it's about what God has done for us. He is the one that tore the curtain in two that separated us from him. He is the one that has brought us near because he has come out to us. He is the one that is making us a nation of priests that we might live in such a way to declare and to demonstrate the glory of his excellent grace and praise to a world that is dying enslaved to sin that's what this doctrine's all about friends that's why I began the way that I did today Jesus came as the priest in the order of Melchizedek and he has brought a new and a better eternal covenant to us and Christian because of Jesus Christ the scriptures tell us you are are a priest forever with him. I want you to see this. Let's go back to 1 Peter now, to chapter 2, and let's pick up where Peter is at and see how he is teaching us as he teaches the Christians of the first centuries. He says this, like living stones, you are being built up as living stones into a spiritual house. 
Now, if you remember where I started this whole series back in August, you'll remember this. Peter is familiar with stones. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus comes to his disciples and he says to them, who do others say that I am? And the disciples, not wanting to be wrong in front of everybody because we don't like that, right? They said, well, some said you're Elijah, right? Like, if I don't know the answer, I at least want to make the teacher feel good about me, right? That's called brown nosing. That's how I got through school. And he said, well, some said you're, you're Moses. I mean, they're thinking of the greatest prophets that have ever lived. and said, Jesus, you're like them. But Jesus said, I didn't ask you what everybody else said because what I really want to know is who do you say that I am? And Peter said what? You are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are Lord. You're the fulfillment of all of God's promises of salvation for his people. And Jesus said to him, Peter, you are right. Peter's name means what? Stone, pebble, little stone. You are small stone, but on the cornerstone of the declaration of this truth you've just proclaimed, I will build my church. And the gates of Hades will not prevail against it as it moves out into the world to bring the hope of the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, this was the defining moment of Peter's life, even more so than denying Christ. He learned a lot in that. But this conviction that Jesus is Lord became the defining confession of all of Christianity. So when Peter writes, he is the living stone, and you Christians like him, like living stones, are being built together in a spiritual house. Friends, this isn't just the best analogy he could think of. This was the defining conviction and reality of his life. And that's what he is teaching to us. He says this in verse 4, as you come to him, He's just told us in verses 1 through 3 about this coming to him. In verse 3, he says, For those who have tasted that the Lord is good. Do you know who those people are? They're the people who have heard the gospel. And because of the faith that came from the hearing of the word of God, they've repented of their sins and they said, You know what? I'm never going to get this all right in my own. I need a Savior because I'm a sinner. And they repented of their sins and they put their faith in Jesus Christ and they became those who had tasted that in fact God is good because Jesus is good and goodness to us. And Peter says, for all of those who have tasted and know that the Lord is good, as you come to him, the whole of the Christian life is a process of this, that we stand before God blameless in his sight. But every moment, every hour, every day and week and year of our life is a continual movement to the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ in this coming more to God and more into his likeness and into his image. That's what Peter is saying. You see, Peter's speaking to people who all around them, their Christian brothers and sisters, were falling like flies because the Roman government was killing them as sport and game. They understood the cost of what it meant to confess Jesus is Lord. It was going to cost them their whole life. 
And Peter said, but they can't take from you the very life that is yours. Because God has made you a living stone like the one who is the living stone. And what he's doing among you while he leaves you here on this earth is to make you into a spiritual house for his habitation. You see, when God got rid of the Holy of Holies, it's not that he became homeless. He just created and started building a new house that he would inhabit. And that's the house of his people who have become his habitation. And so as you come to him, he says, like living stones, you are like the one who is the great high priest, Jesus Christ. And you have become a nation of priests built into a spiritual house. You see, Jesus, by faith in his work and through the grace of God, brings an individual person's identity from being only individual into covenant with other Christians And the Christian life is one of covenant before God with others who individually have responsibility for the whole. That's what this doctrine is all about. That's what this teaching of Peter is all about. He says, hey, each one of you are responsible for the whole and the whole is responsible for each one. That's what he's teaching us in this doctrine. You see, friends... The priesthood of all believers says that the Christian life is a covenant with others, with individual responsibility for the whole before God. What I want to spend the remainder of our time doing today is I want to talk about three specific roles that God has given to every Christian as a priest in the eternal kingdom of his kingdom. The first one I want you to see is this. The first role is that we live a life of worship, honoring God in all of our life with all of our life. Listen to me, friends. Here's the truth that establishes this. We've talked about it, even in understanding in the revelation of God and our salvation. But Christians are chosen by God to proclaim His glory. Chosen by God to proclaim His glory. The first responsibility of every Christian is to live a life of worship. That's what Peter says when he speaks of us as living stones. Honoring God with life's whole forms our first and our principal responsibility as Christians. Every Christian enjoys this personal communion by direct access of God. We don't require another human being to mediate our relationship with God. I'm going to tell you what I want God to know, and you go tell him. And I tell you, and I'll wait for a response to come back. No, when we speak because of what Christ has done, because the Spirit of God lives within us, the Bible says even when we don't understand what we're trying to pray, the Spirit utters groans for us that the Son sitting at the right hand of the Father receives in our stead, and He is interceding on our behalf to the Father, and that communication comes immediately back to us. Faster than we could even imagine, God is listening, hearing our prayers, and responding to us. That's the fellowship and the communion that we enjoy with God because of what Christ has done for us. He entered God's presence. The Bible says he put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. He destroyed the barrier, that curtain of separation between us and God. And he has made all who believe in him 
the people of God's new habitation. Friends, the spirit within you testifies to you of God's will for you by the accomplished work of Jesus Christ. There isn't any part of God that's being withheld from you. He's poured his whole self out. And that's what he is and that's who or what he does for us. But the Spirit grants no one to use this access to God only for personal purpose, personal pleasure, or personal gain. You see, Hebrews instructs Christians to serve as priests in worship among the church and among the body. Listen to this. Listen to how it is that we live as priests among the church. Hebrews chapter 10 verses 19 to 25 says this, therefore brothers, why, what is he talking about? He's saying, because we have such a great high priest who has done all for us that we've just talked about, this is the way we operate as a nation of priests among one another. Therefore brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, not because of what we've done, but because of what he has done. By the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, because that we have communion with God and he has opened a way for us, Therefore, he says, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Let me just apply this for a moment. How many of you walked in here today or got in your car to get here today and there was some inkling in the back of your mind that maybe somewhere, somehow, God didn't really want you to show up today? Something someone said to you, something you chose to believe about you, something that occurred to you in this last week or this last month has made you believe that maybe God doesn't want you in his presence as much as you think you want him. Hebrews is telling us this. We know that's not true as Christians, but we don't always know who's struggling and wrestling with that truth and the reality of their life. So when we come together, let us draw near with a true heart in the full assurance of faith. Why? Because one man's assurance encourages another man's failing faith. Because one lady's assurance builds up another lady who believes something about herself that is not true before God. It is the assurance of our faith that imbibes encouragement into the other believers to understand these senses that we've been given because of what God has done for us. Your presence in this room and with these people today matters more than you can know. You don't know who is drawing from your assurance of faith even by just watching you. Tell me you've never walked into a room and said, I'm not exactly sure what I'm supposed to do. And you immediately began to look around you and go, these people are all here. They've been here forever. I'm the only new one here. I'll just watch what they do to know what I ought to do. And right there you begin to influence people. And I'm telling you, if you're sitting on your blessed assurance, they'll think that's exactly the throne that they're supposed to be on. But if you're running into the place where God is, into deeper communion, you say, well, everybody's going. I guess I'll just go with them. Come on. Come on. I'm telling you, God wants you, because of what you know about him, Christian, to be waving to everybody. Let's go. Come on.
let us. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope, he says, verse 23, without wavering for he who promised his faithful God, I don't know if I can hold the line. I don't know if I can keep doing what I believe you've called me to do. I don't know if I am strong enough to continue this path that you have placed me on. I want to go back to the things so often that I have tried, and I know they failed me, but it's such a quick fix and it's so immediate for me maybe that'll be enough for me this next time I mean our heart is prone to wonder Lord I feel it do you feel it I do when the world speaks to me a lie that I know is a lie but it's just so accessible so quick, so right there. I could just have it now and then forget about it later. But I know that's not true. I won't forget about it now because the voice that is saying to me, come on, you know you want it, will be the first one to say to me, you stupid idiot, you knew what it would do to you. Because Satan is not only the tempter, he is the accuser. He's not only the one that sucks us into sin, he is the one that crams it down heavier upon us. Some of you came in today Wondering if it'd just be a lot better if you just went back to a life where maybe you knew it didn't provide everything you wanted, but it just seems so much easier when everything you're pursuing doesn't seem possible, right? And do you know what everybody else is in the room for today? I don't care if that defines you perfectly if you're a Christian. God brought you into the room today so that you can hold fast the confession of your hope even when your faith is weak and faltering and it seems to be fading away. You can hold to the one who is holding you and know this, that those that are all around you are going to be able to hold as well because they see you holding on. They remember that Christ is holding them, that he is faithful, that he is the one that will bring about to fulfillment every promise that he's ever made. And because we are gathered, we see one another, we encourage one another, and we build one another up in this way. Peter says, you, Christian, are a nation of priests. You are reminding people not of what you can do. You're reminding each other of what Christ has done for you and why he is worthy of your worship, why he is worthy of your and worthy of your all. So run with everybody else to him because he waits to welcome you in deeper communion. You've been reminded of that yet today? I have. Even yesterday, getting ready for this message and several instances throughout the week. God, get us together. I'm needing you. And it's not even Sunday yet. Let us Consider. Now you've got to stop thinking about yourself for a moment here. How we can stir one another up to good deeds and to deeper love. But let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because God's taking role? No. He is taking role, but not in the way you think. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. Why? Because there's people who are showing up that need you, even when you don't know it. There are people that are showing up that are watching, even when you don't recognize it. There are people, hear me, 
that God is using your priestly service by presence and the worship of your life. Not by the accomplishment, by the way in which you confess that Jesus is still worthy even when I don't remember it. That God is building up faith in other people. Let us not neglect to meet together as is the habit of some. But encourage one another all the more as we see the day approaching. Do not think, never believe, Christian, that you walked in here for no reason or that you came in here only for you. God will not fail to satisfy your every need, but he will not fail his other promise to use you in the lives of one another. Maybe the greatest disease of the American church and American Christianity is the affliction of individualism. How we fail to consider one another, how we think only of ourselves and of our needs, what we need from God, and how we measure church by how does it line up to my standards? How does it serve me and my needs and my desires without consideration for others? Friends, a Christian's priesthood status is never a license to live, to think, or to act with an individual preference or an individual priority placed upon the church but to live among the church, believing and trusting that as we give our lives to serve and to glorify God in all of life, he will satisfy our every need, meet our needs as his will pertains to it. And that will be sufficient for us in every way. Christian, your first responsibility is to honor God in all of life, with all of your life, in order to help Others. The second role is this. It's the role of intercession. To stand in the gap before God and before people. With the first role that we have, we know this. That we have been chosen by God to proclaim his glory. In this second role of intercession, we know that we are commissioned by God as his representatives. As nation of priests. We know this. In verse 6 through 8, Peter says this. We know that those who trust in Jesus will never be put to shame And we also know that the very rock upon which many will build their life by faith will be the very rock that causes those who do not believe to stumble and to be crushed by the same rock. That's what we know. And we appeal to the world for the one whom we represent, Jesus Christ. And we appeal to one, to the one that we represent for the people among whom we live. That's what it means for us to be ambassadors in this world. And so Christians intercede first for the church among the world. Let me appeal again to the life of Abraham since we've utilized him so much already today. From Genesis chapter 18, we find this man Abraham interceding for a city by the name of Sodom. Now, if you do any historical study, you'll learn this. In that day and time, Sodom was the label for every form of wickedness and immorality and unrighteousness. There was a level of shamefulness of sinfulness that you and I can't visualize or conceive of in our hearts and minds today. Sodom had reached its end. And God told Abraham, I'm going to destroy that city. I'm going to rain down burning sulfur and everything in its vicinity will be absolutely obliterated. And you know what Abraham did? So you're talking about Sodom, right, God? 
Let me ask you a question, God. What if there's a thousand people who are righteous living in Sodom? What are you going to do then? I mean, they're righteous people. Where's your promise to them? You know, would you save a thousand people if you found them in Sodom before you destroyed it? And God said, for a thousand people, I'll save them. And Abraham said, okay, okay, well, that's good, that's good. Okay. Suppose it wasn't a thousand. Suppose it was only a hundred. God, if there were a hundred righteous people in Sodom, would you save them? And God said, for a hundred righteous people, I'll save them. And Abraham said, okay, I know I may be testing you here. But can I ask you one more question? God said, go ahead. What's Abraham doing? He's standing in the gap for the people of Sodom. There's a reason for this. Because you see, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family live in Sodom. He said, God, if you find ten people in Sodom, will you rescue them? And God says, for ten people, I will rescue them. You know what God did? He rescued them. He went in and took out the family of Lot before he destroyed the city of Sodom in his holiness and his righteousness. Friends, that's how we intercede. We stand in the gap for those who are among the church living in the world suffering from the unrighteousness of it. And what we see, we understand that that God uses us in this way to bring about his will. Don't miss this, friend. Lot and his family were saved because Abraham interceded. Don't, Don't miss that. That's exactly what the scriptures teach to us. Hebrews 12 tells us this, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Verse 15 of Hebrews 12, see to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. That no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that by it it may be defiled, and that no one is sexually immoral or unholy among you. Friends, Christians intercede for one another that the grace of God might be fulfilled in bringing the holiness and the righteousness of God to our lives. But Christians also intercede before God for the people of the world. For we know that the one who will not repent and believe will stumble and be crushed by the rock upon which we live. And we live our lives in such a way To make the message so known that all can hear and by faith repent and believe. We stand before God and we plead with God to save. God save them. God save them. Why? Because we're priests in a world of sinful, wicked people. We're God's people as a nation of priests. Our testimony as a church is that we live in a city that is far from you, God. And if you don't save them, they don't have hope. And we are here to intercede because you put us here. We exist in this city for this purpose, for their good and for their salvation. And we're praying to the end that you will use us for that very purpose. Make this a righteous city because your people are faithful in our testimony. 
Is that the defining work of our life, Christians? Are we as a church living in such a way, not that it's just about us, but that our city is a better place to live because we exist in it, because the people of our city and the people of this world know the love of God because we've told them, because we've shown them, we've declared and we've demonstrated over and over and over again. And when they've rejected us and when they've refused us and when they've said, no more, I don't want to have it, we've not stopped, but we've continued to intercede before God for people who desperately need to know his love in their life such in a way that they would look at us and say I don't know what they got and I don't know where they got it from but I see the love that is set upon them and I need that in my own life that's what it means to live as a nation of priests to intercede to stand in the gap for God's people and to stand before God for those who live in desperate need of him. The third role that we have is the role of ministry, delivering the love of God through the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Friends, we are chosen by God as his people. We are, um, 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 we, we are called out and commissioned. And here we learn that we are charismed by God to serve in the church for the growth and the maturity of the whole church. Ministry, friends, and this is what I'm going to unpack the next three weeks, so I'm going to wrap it up right here. It involves not only what you do, but why you do it, and it becomes a tangible expression of the spiritual reality that's taking place within us as we manifest the meeting of needs in Jesus' name throughout the whole world. When we minister in Jesus' name, the simplest word and deed, makes the greatest impact for people who are in need. Friends, you may not wear a white collar, but you are a nation of priests. Is your life one that God has chosen you for, commissioned you to, and charismaed you, blessed you for in every way? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your grace. God, break us out of any slumber in which our lives have become embroiled. That we, Father, would be your people who seek your face and your will. That we would seek to live and to serve in this world in such a way that our names wouldn't be remembered, but your name couldn't be missed. Help us in this, God. For this is your will, and that means we'll have to do it by your strength and power alone. It's in your name we pray.